today we're going to look at the last title, which is Prince of Peace. Um, we just sang it in a song, right? Um, this idea that Jesus brings peace to the world in this time. Um, and all these titles have been both challenging us and pointing to hope that resides in all of us, a hope that Jesus and God wants to paint for us. And so if you missed any of the previous weeks, I encourage you to go check them out on the website, um, see where we've been before. Um, but I'm not going to give you any more of what happened to them. So when I sat and I've been listening to all these sermons and I knew I was getting Prince of Peace and I was super excited. I'm like, oh, I could go this way or go that way or where am I going to go with this? Like you start to see the theme of God bringing peace all throughout the Bible and it was just an amazing picture of Jesus. Um, and so I actually struggled coming down to like, what's the concise thing? What's the big idea I want to leave us with this morning? And what I settled on is this that we are all enemies of God, but Jesus makes peace between us through the blood of his cross. We are all enemies, but through the cross, Jesus brings peace. Let's pray, then we'll dive in. Hmm. Father, thank you that you desired peace with us, that you brought it to fruition in Jesus, and we get to live on this side of the cross. We get to be reconciled to you. Uh, so, Spirit, I pray that as you come, um, soften our hearts. Let us see where these truths are not sinking in. Convict us, remind us, encourage us, comfort us. Um, may we see you this morning. Amen. So let's turn to Isaiah 6 uh, super quickly. That's where we've been getting these titles from. And if you're not familiar with Isaiah, it's written about 700 years before the life of Jesus. But some people actually describe it as like the fifth gospel. It, uh, it just looks forward to Jesus. It proclaims what he's going to be like. It gives us all these titles and a bunch of other things um, so accurately that you look at the life of Jesus and you're like, man, it's like he lived with him. And so this is a section we're looking at in Isaiah 9, 6. It says, for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So Andrew and Chris have done a great job kind of laying out the context of Isaiah, what's been going on. So I don't want to go really into depth of that here, but if you've missed those, just know that Isaiah is speaking to the nation of Israel, and they are in the midst of war and conflict. There's bigger nations. There's other nations all around them um, that want to conquer them, and they're making alliances and allegiances. So there's just a lot of conflict going on. Um, and it really establishes for us that, that peace is not the presence of con, uh, calmness, right? Peace requires conflict. It brings the reconciliation of enemies together. That's what peace is at its heart. Uh, and the promise of peace that Isaiah has here is only meaningful when it's spoken into this context. Into the midst of conflict, it brings hope. It's not in the midst of when everything's going well. When you guys hear me say Prince of Peace this morning, you're like, oh, this should be a nice fluffy hug, right? That's not where we're going with it. Sorry to spoil that for you. I wore a dinosaur. He's destructive. Um, but it shows the audience, or Isaiah's original audience, and us today, it leaves us with this message of hope, that God cares about people, that he wants strife to stop. He wants enemies to reconcile with one another. He wants people to thrive in harmony together. And his promise to bring a prince that will bring this peace to Israel and the world is for us today, just as much as it was for them back then. So how does Jesus fulfill this promise? 
What does that look like? How is he the Prince of Peace? So let's fast forward about 700 years to Luke chapter 2. This is a familiar Christmas story that we've heard many a time. I'll read it for us here. Luke 2, 8 to 14. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Proclamation of peace over this baby. This is a familiar Christmas story. It's not offensive. I was sitting in Starbucks this morning and literally heard, peace on earth, goodwill to men, which is an older translation of, of that last phrase, peace on those on whom his favor rests. It's being proclaimed in Starbucks, right? That's not offensive to our culture. We can have that in our Christmas songs. Um, but when you think about it, are babies actually peaceful? I have four kids crying, pooping, causing parental fights. They are not peaceful. This peaceful little picture of a baby is, uh, is a little deceiving. Um, that was my first thought today. I was just trying to picture peaceful babies. One of the babies is going to start screaming soon in here. I can feel it. It's going to happen. But this baby is different. This baby is actually the fulfillment of all God's promises. And it's astounding. But it takes angels to come and proclaim this, right? People don't recognize it right away. But this is the Prince of Peace that Isaiah foretold. So how does a baby, how does this little baby in a manger, wrapped in clothes, fulfill this promise of peace? Let's keep going on in Luke 2 a little bit. This is not a Christmas story that usually gets told. Uh, but in 2, 33 to 35, um, They've taken Jesus as a baby to get circumcised, uh, and then he's, there's this blessing that comes on him in the midst of this. So it says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Peaceful Jesus, sword through the soul. This is even more confusing, isn't it? This is not the picture of peace that we imagine. A baby coming to reveal hearts, to pierce our soul. But it's foretold that Jesus is actually going to cause strife and discontentment. He makes people mad. And he often causes struggle and strife. How is this this appearance of peace? What is going on here? It says you will pierce our soul. The truth of Jesus will cut to the core of us and reveal something. This peaceful baby starts revealing our hearts and minds. He reveals the conflict that lives deep within us that we may willfully ignore or maybe lives and defines our whole life. This is not the Christmas message we're used to, right? 
You know, we're used to the sweetness and the joy and the tranquility of the Christmas message. You know, it's all smiles and hugs and hot cocoa. That's what we love. That's what we want. That's what our culture will grasp onto. Um, But baby Jesus with a sword, I've never seen that on a Christmas sweater. Next year. Next year. People think that Jesus bringing peace on earth today is bringing a message of tolerance and that we can all get along and that we can just chill out um, and sing kumbaya and do those things. This is not the peace that Jesus is bringing. It's something different. This is a sharper peace, a sharper truth. You know, how does a surgeon bring peace to a tumor-ridden body? He cuts you open. He digs deep. He makes you bleed and he roots out the growth in you? Or how does a therapist help with the unrest of depression and anxiety? They dig into your past, into your memories, and they bring these things up, and they make you look at them and deal with them. And both therapist and surgeon often make you feel worse before they make you feel better. Merry Christmas, everybody. And Jesus does this, right? Like the claim of Jesus is that he is the exclusive God of the universe and everything needs to submit and bow down to him. That comes up against all of us in this room and everything our culture teaches about us being the center of everything. He brings conflict because his truth claims override what we believe. So what's going on here? How is he going to bring peace by causing chaos. Um, one of the books I read outside the Bible for this was this great little book that Chris gave me called Hidden Christmas by Tim Keller. I'm going to quote it a whole bunch throughout this. Some of them will be on the screen. Highly recommended. You have my permission to go on your phones for 30 seconds and order this off of Amazon. Otherwise, put your phones away unless you're taking pictures of my sweater. So what's going on here? Keller says this. If you love Jesus and have him in your life, a sword will pass through your heart as well. There will be inner conflict, conflict, sometimes confusion, sometimes great pain. You will get things wrong. You may fight with him and you may fight with yourself. Jesus brings this inner turmoil so that we can confront the deep lies that our lives get based upon the deep untruths about who's in control or what you have to do to prove yourself or what you have to do to satisfy yourself. Jesus confronts those and he knows that this offer of peace is nothing if we cannot see the conflict in us. Like we saw in Isaiah, the Prince of Peace, that promises nothing if the nations are not at war. So Jesus brings this conflict into us so that the power of his peace is profound and actually offers us hope. So how then does this irritating surgeon therapist baby bring us hope, bring us peace? How does God work that out? Let's go to, yeah, you never thought I'd call Jesus an irritating baby, did you? Um, Let's go to Colossians. This is where we're going to rest for for the rest of our time together this morning. Uh, Colossians 1 19 to 22. I'll read this for us. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's Jesus. 
This baby Jesus in a manger has the fullness of God. He is fully God and fully man. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Jesus reveals what's going on in us. He shows us that we are God's enemies because this is the first step towards peace. We are all enemies of our creator. Our relationship with our father is broken. Sin entered in through Adam and Eve, and that was a drawing of a line where humanity said, I know better. I no longer, no longer want to be on God's team. I'm going to be on my team. I'm drawing a battle line saying that I know what's best. So all of us in this room need to overcome the belief. Our culture needs to overcome the belief that we're actually good people. We're not perfect, but we're pretty good. This is a great dangerous lie that stops us from recognizing this. Keller again says, the first step towards peace with God is to recognize that there has been conflict, that we are enemies. We're at war with God in our hearts and in our minds and our actions and our day-to-day lives. But we sit here and you think, yeah, but I'm still pretty good. Most of us think that, you know, in a room, most people are going to like us. We're going to walk in. We're going to make friends. If I asked you right now, think of an enemy in your life. Name your enemy. All of us would struggle. We don't have such harsh lines in our lives. We don't think of people as against us that war with them, none of us could very likely name an enemy in our lives. But the truth is, without Jesus, we are all enemies of God. We are at war with him. But why? Why? You know, I got no beef with God. He never did anything bad for me. Seems like a good guy. Why? Why are we God's enemies? Let's paint a picture of who God is. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just and wise. He is the loving creator of all the world, right? He lovingly crafted humanity in his image because it brought him joy. He didn't need us, but it made his heart happy to have humanity on earth enjoying the garden and thriving um, and how he made them to flourish And then we spit in his face and say, thanks, but no thanks. Thanks for creating us. Thanks for giving us this perfect garden. We want to try it our own way. I know what's best. I need more power. We replace the truths of God with a lie, that we are better than him, that we are bigger than him. We believe that we know what's best. And we continually wage war on God's truths. Every time we worry about tomorrow, we try and destroy his greatness. 
Every time we chase wealth, we undermine his goodness. Every time we try and prove ourselves with our deeds to God, we belittle his graciousness. Every time we seek the approval of others, we demean his glory. We continually belittle and demean and undermine him at every step of our lives. We are God's enemies because he revealed his truth to us and we actively ally ourselves with the lies of the world. Every minute of every day I struggle with this, right? I want to do things my way. I think I know what will satisfy me. I think I know what is best. And every time I do that, I'm saying, God, thanks, but I'm going to pick a different ally in this fight. I'm going to choose something better than you. I'm going to prioritize my petty kingdom over your glorious eternal kingdom. And what does this lead to? This leads to lives riddled with sin, humanity riddled and covered with sin throughout their existence. And God in his gracious mercy says, that's enough. I need to deal with this once and for all. It's this sin this belief of lies needs to be atoned for. It needs to be paid for. It needs to be punished. But I'm not going to take it out on the humans. I'm going to take it out on my own son. So we are God's enemies because we put his son on the cross to be brutally murdered. That was the outcome of our sin. That was the end result of our war on God, of making him our enemy. His response is amazing. Hmm. But, you know, I've never done those things. That was all the people in the past, right? It's not me. Here's a simple little thought or example for you. What was your first thought when you woke up today? What am I going to wear? What am I going to have for breakfast? What am I going to do today to get done what I want to do? Whatever it is, right? But usually starts with that sentence, what am I? just reveals our hearts, right? Every day I wake up thinking about how I'm going to move forth my will, move forth my plans, bring a little bit of glory and fame to Matt. But I'm saying that my glory is more important than his, that my plans come before his. This is at the heart of all of our sin. So every day when we don't start off with your will be done, Lord, not mine. Every moment, every minute, every action needs to be defined by that. But we can't because we're selfish and sinful. That's okay. That's okay right now. There's good news coming. There's good news. We don't have to stay enemies with God. Let's go on to verse 22 in Colossians. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. This is amazing. We've been reconciled. We've been made right. Peace has been brought to this conflict. The prince has intervened between man and God to bring healing and rightness and right relationship We were his enemies. He could have crushed us. He made us. He knows us intimately. He could have destroyed us. And yet he decides to make peace. 
This is good news. This is why the gospel is called good news, because this is amazing. Jesus dies this excruciating death so that we can be made holy and pure and right without God. I love that last bit. It says, free from accusation. God can no longer accuse us of sin or doing things our own way because when he looks at us, all the punishment and payment for our sins and transgressions have been taken on by Jesus. Earlier on in this verse, it says, peace through his blood shed on the cross. In that moment, God no longer looks at us and sees our sins because Jesus paid for them. When we know Jesus, he looks at us and sees the perfect life of his son. Therefore, there can be peace. Things have been made right. The war is over. We move from enemies to friends to family. We are God's own son and daughter. It's amazing. It's amazing. And that truth changes our lives. Changes who we are at our core. Because the conflict that Jesus came to reveal that lives deep within us, that comes out in our lives in insecurities or pride or arrogance or chasing wealth or whatever it is, that conflict has been taken care of. We don't have to live that way anymore. We can live out of our new identity as children of God fully at peace with him and within his family. So what does that look like? How is this peace lived out in our lives? Another little verse or <clears throat> snippet from Keller here. It says, The coming of Jesus into our lives makes us peacemakers, yet it also brings conflict. If you are a committed Christian, then you will know both the triumphs of peacemaking and the heartbreak of opposition. Christians often feel like the psalmist when he wrote, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. So if I, I've wrestled through this this week of just what does peace look like in my life? How does this message need to be applied to my own heart? I can't just stand up here and tell you guys about this without letting it do the work in me. And uh, yeah, it's been... The last two Christmases actually have been this season of conflict in myself um, with my dad, actually. And I won't get into all the details of it, but it's just been difficult of going, seeing, you know, someone who you've looked up to and followed and has been an inspiration for, for your faith and just seeing brokenness in him and in myself and how that's led to relational conflict, to hard times, to fighting and arguing and and discontentment, and discomfort, and awkwardness, and all these things. Um, and so this all came to a head a few weeks ago, so you know, I'm still working through it. And then I get to preach on Prince of Peace, of Jesus coming in and, and taking care of conflict and turmoil between God and in myself, and between myself and others. And this peace, the inner consequences of it, really came to light, what it does in myself and in my heart and in my mind. And for me, two ways came to the forefront of how this peace affects me and likely affects you. 
uh, as you're working through conflict and trouble in relationships or in yourself or whatever it is. And the first one is Jesus's peace brings the inner conflict of repentance, of turning from my own ways and turning to God's ways. And I have to wrestle with admitting where I was wrong. We all like to think that we're right all the time, especially arrogant people like me. And I have to fight with the idea that I'm weak in areas, that I don't always know what's best, or I can't always be strong here. I have to let my pride be put to death, because it's no good. Nothing to be prideful of when Jesus did it all for me. And as I admit my wrongdoing to Jesus, it changes my posture in any relational conflict with my family, with others at work, whatever it is. Because it allows me to remain humble and calm. I'm repenting of I know best, I know right, my way or the highway, and saying, Jesus, I trust you. Thank you for making peace. So that's the first way. Brings this conflict of repentance, of turning from something else back to Jesus. The second way Jesus has been bringing peace in the midst of my inner conflict is the peace of submission. Of submitting to someone bigger than myself. Submitting to the king of the universe. You know, I want to be master of the situation. I want to plan out what's best, what I need to do, what the other person needs to do. And if we meet all these criteria, if we check all these boxes, then the situation will be resolved and we can move on. The call of the Prince of Peace is submit to him. He's a good master. You can trust him. So peace comes from me when I say, not my will be done, but yours, Jesus. Just as a side note, the call to submit is not the call to accept bullying or abuse, right? We can still stand up to those things while submitting to Jesus. We just don't have to protect our own little kingdoms anymore. We don't have to stand up for what we have earned and grasped and built because we now stand for what Jesus is building, what he has built, the kingdom that is breaking in on earth and we'll go see in heaven. That's a good master. So the question for you, I just put all my junk on the table. It's your turn. Where does Jesus, where does his peace bring conflict in your, bring, where does he bring peace to conflict in your life right now? Or maybe where does his peace stir up conflict that you need to work through? Where are you trying to be the prince or the princess of peace in your life, trying to control a situation? And I see this play out in two ways really strongly this time of year. It's probably affecting a lot of us in, these, in this room right now. The first one is the false peace of control. If you find yourself saying, if I plan the perfect Christmas dinner, then life will be happy and great and peaceful. Or if I buy the perfect present, I've agonized over this, I've checked their browsing history for the past years, it can be dangerous. Um, I've gone through their Amazon list, and I know what they want. They'll never guess that I found it. 
I found the perfect present that's going to make Christmas amazing. All will be well. Or if I can just clear my schedule, get away from work, get away from the chaos of life, have a little rest, do nothing. That's my plan for Christmas. Underwear, basketball, lots of food. That's Chris's Christmas. Um, Maybe mine. But it's the lie that if things are just right, then joy and peace will come. If I can dial things in perfectly, make sure that that person doesn't sit next to this person at Christmas dinner because they'll say the wrong thing. If we control all of that, then we'll get the false peace of control. It'll make Christmas just right. Just right. We think that we can bring peace on earth. How arrogant of us. How arrogant of us. So if this is you, is this, if this is where your heart is right now, has been, or is going to be as we lead up to Christmas dinners, you need to repent. You need to repent and acknowledge that you are not in control. And trust that Jesus is better than all your plans. Replace the lie that you are strong and wise with the truth that Jesus is. And that his plan is better than your plan. So repent and then submit. Submit to the will of Jesus in this Christmas season and in your whole life. He has something better for you than you can ask or imagine. Make peace with God to overcome the anxiety that works itself out in your control of everything. So that's one, false peace of control. Two, the other one we see predominantly in this season is the false peace of material gratification. Things, stuff, food are going to make me feel awesome. You know, I can't wait for dot, dot, dot. What is it? That new toy, that new sweater. Sweater. Um, Amazon. Um, my new whatever is just going to be so amazing. We see this in our kids, right? but it still lives within us. You know, I'm a, I can still remember when half the presents under the tree were mine. And now I sit there and I'm like, none of those are for me. I'm going to get a box of chocolate and a mug. And part of me like mourns that, right? Like it, it hurts that I'm not the center of attention, that I'm not going to be satisfied by a gift. Uh, or I saw it in my kids yesterday. Um, their aunts and uncles got them all board games. And they're just like, what? What is this box of cards in it? They're so, like, there was so much hope when they saw the pile of presents. They were so excited because it was unknown. There was, the hope was still alive. And then it got dashed when Snakes and Ladders came out. <laughs> but, right, they actually have done studies, and the endorphins are the highest right before you open the present. That's when our body peaks out at max gratification. And as soon as we start opening it, the hope goes away. But that's what Christmas is for a lot of us, right? We're all kids inside. We all think back to those fond memories of being satisfied by gifts and presents. Or maybe now it's like, man, I'm so excited for that post-Christmas dinner food coma. It's the best time of year. I'm just going to lie on the couch and undo my button. It's going to be great. And this is the lie that people 
presence and poultry can satisfy us. It's just not true. Physical things bring us happiness, but they don't bring us contentment and joy. And if this is you, I'm sure this lives in all of us. I know this is where my heart goes at Christmas. We need to repent. We need to turn from the lie that anything but Jesus can satisfy us. It's not Jesus plus a nice family. It's not Jesus plus this new thing. It's not Jesus plus a delicious meal. It's just Jesus. He promises that he will fulfill us in ways that we can't even grasp. And all these little earthly things should point us to him. We can have Christmas dinner and every bite should be, oh man, I'm so excited for heaven. This is 1% of what heaven is going to be. It's going to be amazing. They point us to a better reality where we're fully satisfied in him. So repent and submit. Submit to the life of sacrifice that Jesus calls you to. We actually give up these things. We give up presents. We give up our own cozy Christmas dinner to invite in the stranger. We give them up. We live this life of sacrifice and submission to Jesus because that makes his heart happy. Therefore, it makes our hearts happy. We need to make peace with God so that we don't look for satisfaction elsewhere. Hmm. So finally, as this message of peace starts to sink in to our hearts, we recognize the implications of what it means to be at peace with God, to repent to him, to submit to him. It also calls us to share this good news with others to proclaim that we can be at peace with God. Keller describes it like this. Peacemakers are people who, through fully making peace with God, have finally learned how to admit flaws and weakness, how to surrender their pride, how to love without the need to control every situation. Their skills have enormous power to diffuse conflicts, to facilitate forgiveness and reconciliation between people. Jesus wants to do through us, in the world around us, what he's done in us. The inner realities of our peace with God allows us to be peacemakers in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, to take this message and make it known. We're called to reconcile conflict, to make enemies friends, to proclaim that peace between God and man is now reality. This is the message of Christmas. This is why Prince of Peace brings us hope. It's not calmness and tranquility. It's the end of conflict with God. I'll invite the band up. Keller goes on and closes. Christmas means that through the grace of God and the incarnation, peace with God is available. And if you make peace with God, then you can go out and make peace with everybody else. And the more people who embrace the gospel and do that, the better off the world is. Christmas, therefore, 
means the increase of peace, both with God and between people across the face of the world. So we've got to ask ourselves a couple questions as we leave here. Have I allowed the blood of Jesus to bring peace between myself and God? Is my life defined by arrogance and ignorance or repentance and submission? That's a question for those in this room that know and don't know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, man, do you want peace with him? Do you want him to work on the conflict and the turmoil that lives within you? And if you know Jesus, are you letting him? Are you letting him deep into your hearts to root out these lies that we believe and repenting and submitting to him? So how have we allowed it to bring us peace? Second question. Where has Jesus called me to be a peacemaker in my life? Where does this good news of great joy need to be spread? Maybe it's just within your own home at first. Or your own family. Maybe your workplace is a depressing place that needs this truth. Maybe your neighborhood chases after false satisfaction. And it needs this truth that Jesus is the only one that will satisfy. Let's pray. (sighs) Father, thank you that you interceded. That you saw that we could never end this conflict on our own. And brought the Prince of Peace to reconcile us. So we are no longer enemies, but become family. So Spirit, in this season of false joy and happiness. May true contentment come in you. May we go through our days and our lives at peace with you. Knowing that you have reconciled us through your blood. Amen.